the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Georgie Borman, a journalist, author, and commentator with West Coast Roots. This is a 180 cast breakdown session where I take a critical look at the big ideas that shape our world and how people are changing their minds. Welcome to the 180 cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to changing minds. And this is a breakdown session where I talk about news and some of the big ideas that are impacting you right now and may impact you shortly in the future, as well as break down and analyze some of the highlights from the 180 cast interviews, which are every other week. I am so so excited to talk about the episode that I did with David McMillan about young earth creationism. I thought it was really, really fascinating and uh, challenging for me as well. And we are going to take your comments from the flip phone, which I'm also very excited to talk about, and debunk a little conventional wisdom. Speaking of debunking conventional wisdom, yes, we are going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is something that I wrote last week, which has caused quite a bit of a stir, quite a bit of controversy. I have a new piece out on that same topic explaining my reasoning yesterday, and we are going to talk a little bit about that because I think it is an educational experience. It's been... <laughs> It's been very educational for me, and I, I hope it is um, for you too. Before we get started, don't forget you can follow the 180 cast on Twitter and Instagram at 180 cast. Go ahead and tag me and don't be shy. Of course, you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. We have a lot of news to get to today. Some breaking news on the woke slash intersectional slash anti-Semitic front. So let's get into a couple of the top stories. You may have heard that Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau was caught in blackface, or some are calling it brownface, from a party in 2001, an Arabian Nights party. So he's wearing a turban. He's got paint all over his face. He's, he even did his hands as well. And the, the picture is very interesting, not so much because he's wearing um, brown face slash black face, but because he has his hand sort of draped over the woman in front of him, and he's kind of like grasping her neck in a way, like his hand is resting on her collarbone. A little bit weird. I feel like if Trump had done the same thing, which I'm sure there's probably some picture out there because Trump loves to party about Trump grabbing women in, in certain areas and... <clears throat> things like that. I'm sure there's a picture of Trump having his, his hand around a woman's neck. And uh, I, I think that that is, you know, a valid criticism if we're going to be criticizing both of them. But you may remember not that long ago, maybe it was a long time ago. It's just hard to tell with news 
Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Sometimes it feels like three years ago. But Governor Ralph Northam was um, caught in a high school yearbook photo as being in blackface as well. Most people, well, not most people, but a lot of people, including myself, really thought that this was going to sink Northam. There's no way that Northam, the governor of Virginia, could possibly survive a picture of him in blackface. Or, for that matter, what he said uh, about late-term abortion and uh, how to handle infants that are um, born alive on accident or, or born alive when they weren't wanted. I thought at least one of those two things would sink him. But no, 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 no. No, he's still there. So learning experience, um, I don't know how that story went down in Canada, but there is some, some precedent on this continent for getting away with that sort of thing. I think it's okay if you, if, you know what, if you apologize and you're sincere about it, I think we should be able to forgive people. I'm not a huge fan of cancer, cancel culture. I think we should be able to forgive people, but it is a little rich. It's a little little rich that Justin Trudeau, who's like one of the most intersectional leaders of our time in terms of leading the the wokeness crowd, that that he was caught in in brown face. I'm just just saying. Moving on to the next story, uh, Zara Ballou is a lawyer and activist who was just hired on as of yesterday at the Women's March because Tamika Mallory, Linda Sarsour, and Bob Bland were out at the Women's March. Not uh, The Women's March claims that they didn't cut ties with them, that their terms expired. Okay, however you want to put it. They replaced them with a, a panel or a board of 16 members, which is, I have to say, kudos to them, extremely diverse. They really put a lot of thought into that. I'm sure I don't agree with probably 90% of the things that those people agree with, but you have to to give them credit where it's due. They say they value uh, diversity of background, ethnic and racial background and, um, disabilities and things like that. And uh, they they followed through on that to their credit. But yes, Zara Blue was one of those members. And now, just 24 hours later, she has been voted off that board because of a plethora of anti-Semitic tweets. A plethora of anti-Semitic tweets. This is from the JC, okay? Uh, it has a, a list of, of several of her tweets. So, buckle up. Israel commits war crimes and terrorism as a hobby. No need for a Holocaust museum, seeing as how Israel has taken it upon itself to recreate it. That's from 2010. Doesn't see any difference between American youth leaving the country to join ISIS or the IDF, that's the Israeli Defense Force. Both are murderous, war crime-committing terrorist entities. That's from last year. Last year she said this. Here's another one from 2015. I'm more afraid of racist Zionists who support apartheid Israel than of the mentally ill young people the FBI recruits to join ISIS. Another one from that same year. Zionism is the violent ideology responsible for the genocide and displacement of indigenous Palestinians and the destruction of the Palestinian land. 
This is from the year before that, 2014. Blaming Hamas for firing rockets at apartheid Israel is like blaming a woman for punching her rapist. These things were not that hard to find. They weren't deleted tweets. They were they were still up. Um, so a lot of people have said, oh, they must have kicked out the original trio because of the anti-Semitism. That was dragging down their organization. They're, they must be trying earnestly to address this situation because they're very sorry about it. And the Women's March did put out a statement uh, earlier this year, or maybe it was the end of last year, saying that they, they were sorry about the anti-Semitism and that they were going to try harder to properly represent Jewish women and include them in their unity principles and so on and so forth. Clearly, the anti-Semitism did not bother them that much because if they were really worried about it, they would have vetted these people much better and not put people on their board that believe that firing rockets into civilian zones in Israel is like blaming a woman for punching her rapist and who wouldn't compare the doings of the IDF to recreating the Holocaust. That is extremely offensive. Extremely offensive and disgusting. You can't just brush that off as, oh, you know what? It's okay to, to criticize policies of other governments. That's fine. Yes, you should criticize policies of other governments when they are not moral. Anyway, Miss Ballou... <clears throat> in a very, very lengthy tweet storm this morning, which is the day before you're hearing this, Miss Ballou claimed to have been the subject of an Islamophobic smear campaign led by the usual antagonists who have long targeted me, my colleagues, and anyone else who dares speak out in support of Palestinian human rights and their right to self-determination. Regarding the Women's March, she said... To see and experience its new leaders caving to right-wing pressure and casting aside a woman of color, a Muslim woman, a long-time advocate within the organization, without the willingness to make any efforts to learn and grow, breaks my heart. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the learning and growing was coming from people pointing out how anti-Semitic the Women's March leadership was. I thought that was the learning and growing that the Women's March was supposed to be doing. But apparently not. Apparently, that's, that's not it at all. And in, in, case you, in, in case you just need a refresher, Tamika Mallory made a huge splash on The View earlier this year, or maybe it was the end of last year, that uh, when she said that, uh, well, basically she refused to condemn uh, Louis Farrakhan for some of the anti-Semitic things that he has said. He has called Jewish people the slumlords of the black community. He has said, I'm not, I'm not anti-Semite. I'm anti-termite. Which is, of course, extremely disgusting. And she refused to um, condemn, condemn him for that. To her credit, Bob Bland did. And so she should be credited with that. But there you go. The Women's March. And of course, I, I wrote an article in January of this year saying, look, 
the the women's march is is completely intersectional that is the that is the um worldview that they stand by and it's not just about diversity it's about a, a matrix of um uh, oppression in which you determine who is the most oppressed based off of which mar- marginalized group and how many marginalized groups they belong to and Jewish people have always been at the bottom of that pile because they are considered, as Tamika Mallory herself has said, as part of the white ruling class, as part of the white uh, oppressor class. So because Jewish people are considered white in intersectional ideology, they, their, their concerns about uh, being discriminated against, being persecuted and targeted are not as valid as concerns of, say, um, Muslim women such as Zara Ballou. So there we go. Oh, quick note on the Lewandowski hearing. So Trump's former campaign manager, of course, was dragged before Congress this week to restate things that have already been said in previous reports. And this is supposedly the first of impeachment hearings, quote unquote, from the House Judiciary Committee. Okay, Lewandowski, by his own admission, was told by Trump to tell the special counsel to limit their investigation of Trump. But Lewandowski didn't do that. Instead, he passed that duty off to another aide to convey to the the special counsel. And like, that's the story. That's that's it. That's that's all there is. So let's think about this for just a second. If they don't have any harder evidence of obstruction than this, my thinking is that they would have started the hearings with that, right? You start with the bombshell, and then you get the ball rolling with that, and then you pick up some some extra stuff as that ball starts rolling down the hill. So they would have played their best card first to get people's attention, and then the rest, you know, things like this, like this thing with Lewandowski, that's quote-unquote obstruction, would just be icing on the cake. So I, I think that the, this tank is running on fumes as far as the obstruction thing and the Trump-Russia thing. They're really running on fumes, and I think that this is, is, is politicking. This is high politicking, just plain and simple. I mean, this is, this is what you do to generate headlines and steer attention in a particular uh, direction or away from an unwanted direction, and that's just how politics works in D.C. It's how politics works everywhere. So it's always helpful to, to zoom out in that respect and look at the broader situation and apply your understanding of human nature and, and politics in general. And that's my opinion on what's going on. Um, wow, we have a lot of, of news today. I just want to throw in really quickly that Union Seminary, which is the oldest seminary in the United States, is now straight up teaching paganism. Um, there has been a, a story going around, well, not a story, a, a picture going around on social media of some students that look like they're praying to plants. And Union Seminary put out a, a Twitter statement on it saying that they are confessing their sins to plants and they totally stand by that as completely valid because plants are, quote unquote, divinely created. So we can confess confess our sins to to the planet, basically, for for the, the havoc that we've 
reaped, I guess. This is very, this is very bizarre. And, you know, a lot of people are, are people in the Christian community are worried about um, critical theory infiltrating the, the seminaries. And that's, of course, part and parcel of the, the intersectional thing and uh, how to basically put a matrix over everything and determine who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed and, and, and make sure that anybody who's part of the oppressor class is apologizing to the other, uh, to the marginalized people groups. But now we're on to paganism. So there's some, some serious problems going on in Christian education that need to be addressed. I just, I could hardly believe it. But here we are. Here we are. It's 2019. With that, I am so excited to move on to interview highlights. Yes. So, episode 26 was an interview with David McMillan, who is a writer for Medium.com and BioLogos. He used to be a very passionate blogger for Young Earth Creationism. He said he started blogging around 14 or 15, which is very young. And he was hobnobbing with some of the, the bigger names or the, the bigger brands in uh, creationist, creation science, like people from Answers in Genesis and, and Ken Ham and, and people like that. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I don't, uh, I don't agree. I don't agree with where he came down, but... I really appreciate his reasoning and the thoughtfulness that he put into this. Basically, this is it's interviews like this that really are the reason why I started this podcast and why I continue to do this podcast because I want to look at people who have really, really changed their minds and have really examined both sides. And I think that he's done that. You can always demand more from people. It's like, you don't know enough about this. You don't know enough about that. But I think that his his story was very, very compelling. And uh, he certainly has some, some strong feelings about creation science. Now, I have a, I have a, a couple thoughts that he shared from that interview that I want to play here. The first one is about philosophical commitment. I can say very definitively that it's not the science. Uh, the, the creation science or the, or the creation science teachings and arguments, they're really bad. And, uh, and the only way to hold to them, and I'll, uh, you know, I'm, it's, a, it's a bold statement, I know, but the only way to hold to them is to have a philosophical commitment to them that uh, that's independent of the facts. And so that's that's where, you know, that's where I have some strong disagreements with people who say that, you know, they believe in creationism because of the science, because I've been there and I, I know it's it's washed up. Presuppositions matter. We're we don't look at facts as somebody who was just born yesterday and and doesn't have experiences and beliefs and feelings that they take into their examination of the evidence. And I think that that's really important to understand and something that I have had a hard lesson in recently. Philosophical commitments can't be underestimated. People tend to think that when they are examining the evidence, that they are doing so objectively and they are completely pure of heart 
in the way that they approach it. And then they turn around and get super defensive when somebody provides a objection to their view of the facts. And that's just generally how things work in in every (laughs) debate imaginable. I, yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot about, about presuppositions and because there's no way to approach a set of facts objectively. As I said, the best way you can do it in my estimation is to acknowledge where you yourself are coming from and what your presuppositions are and what you are unwilling to give up. And I'm speaking here in terms of faith. So if you're a Christian and you're listening, if you say, this is my faith, these are the the fundamentals of the gospel, these are things that I'm not going to compromise on, and I believe that the evidence is going to line up with these things, and you you take the Bible as the word of God, then that's that's where you're starting from. Those are your presuppositions, and you're going to examine the evidence in light of that. And if if there's an objection that you come across, it doesn't mean that you ignore it. And that leads right into the uh, next comment from David that I'm going to play. Because I want people to think, okay, am I really willing to evaluate the evidence critically? Uh, is there evidence that would convince me? What would that look like? Does that exist? Those are the questions that people need to ask. Otherwise, uh, they're going to be trapped in this mindset where evidence is just something to explain away. Evidence is just something to to push out of their mind or come up with an alternate explanation for. And they're not thinking about whether their belief is something that's actually dependent on evidence. See, this is where this is where I struggle because... I do have my my presuppositions and I'm not going to abandon those and pretend like those don't exist. I feel like that might get me into more trouble in terms of interpreting the evidence as far as evaluating its accuracy, its strength, its uh, ability to corroborate other things. If I leave that behind and, and pretend like those don't exist, am I... Am I being, am I actually being honest? Am I being honest with myself? Am I being honest with other people when I'm approaching the subject? What, what do you, what do you do when, when it, evidence, he's, he's correct. Evidence is not something to explain away. It's something to deal with in the most honest way that you can and to evaluate it. And I think the really the biggest thing to focus on. And I haven't, as you can tell, I haven't, I don't have all of this figured out. But I think the most important thing to focus on is when somebody has an objection and say, hey, what about this? Then you need to stop and listen and actually listen to what they say and think it through and evaluate how does that line up against what I believe? How does it line up with this other evidence that I have over here? So you listen First, listen thoroughly without being defensive, thoroughly and thoughtfully, and then apply reason to it. Apply logic to it. Because all of us are operating off of that view, basically, that logic matters and that that's something that we all have in common, that we should try to 
well, unless you're a postmodernist, but most of us, like I believe David and I would agree that reason and, and logic are very critical to evaluating what's correct and what is incorrect. So that's where I'm at with this right now. But this episode really challenged me. It challenged me, of course, with the some of the evidence that, that he brought up against creation science, and I really appreciated that. But it also challenged me to think about, just in general, how I'm approaching evidence and how I'm dealing with my presuppositions and where I come from, from a, a place of faith. So those are my thoughts on the interview. Do go and listen to it. It's episode 26 um, with David McMillan. And now it is time to move on to the Woke of the Week. Yes. Yes, there's no forgiveness for SNL comedian Shane Gillis, or almost SNL comedian Shane Gillis, who was fired for some old jokes that he made or some old comments that he made. I don't know if you can really call them jokes, and I guess that's that's part of the problem. And they were mostly made on his podcast. They involved some derogatory language, some slurs. Um, he used the F slur for gays, the C slur for, for Asian Americans. He called women who disguised themselves to fight during the Civil, civil War as quote-unquote flat-chested biatches. And according to Vanity Fair... He was actually a last-minute hire on the part of SNL, and he was meant to allegedly appeal to conservatives to counteract the widely understood liberal bias that Saturday Night Live has. None of, none of the comments that I heard from him were particularly funny. And as I said, I think that that's a big part of the problem. I saw a clip that he did about Chinatown, and it wasn't it, it wasn't really funny. But most these these podcasts run by comedians, it's not a polished routine where you go and 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 do this bit in front of different people and see how it plays out and get feedback and and then go and do it on a big stage. Like that's not how podcasting works. You're sort of just spitting into the air. And whatever comes out of your mouth and you post on the internet, you're you're liable for. Um, the the Chinatown bit, it, I don't think it was motivated by animosity. He was talking about how there's a difficulty in communicating with waiters and restaurant owners in Chinatown when it comes to ordering your food. And that's that's a fine thing to to talk about in, in comedy. Cross cultural communication can be hilarious, and it's a subject that many comedians have covered and can cover very very well. But if you're unfunny about it, and you're a smaller comedian, and you're just diving into those cross cultural waters, and you think that the best way to go is just to to make fun of uh, Chinese accents, um, you're going to get snagged. You're going to get snagged. You're going to get really jammed up. And that is what has happened with Shane Gillis. So uh, he could be really funny. He could be really funny in other respects. Obviously, he impressed the the SNL cast with his audition because they hired him, but they didn't do a great job vetting him. As I said before, I'm not a huge fan of cancel culture. I I, I go back and forth. I think you could go either either way on this. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. That kind of makes sense. You want to keep him on and and have him apologize as, as long as he's doing it sincerely. 
uh, more power to you. I just don't think it was particularly funny. I don't think it was particularly tasteful. Uh, there, if you're going to to talk about ethnic ethnic matters and uh, cultural matters, um, there is a way to do it that's funny and that people from basically all walks of life should be able to appreciate it and not feel mm, like they're being smeared. Now it is time to check the flip phone for your comments on this past episode. I got a comment via text messages, text message on the flip phone at 323-999-1802. This person says, love the podcast. It really makes you think regarding the 180 cast guest that flipped from young earth to old earth. I loved David McMillan's perspective and approach. I heard so much of my past self when he talked about those who are entrenched in their positions and not willing to ask questions and honestly listen to answers or examine evidence. It's okay to question. It's a sign of a thinking human being. And they go on to say, I especially appreciated the questions David asked at the end of the podcast. Is there evidence that would convince you to change your mind? Does evidence even matter? If we all asked ourselves these same questions and answered honestly, we might stop talking at each other and begin talking to each other on a whole variety of topics. And in the process, we may learn something or even change our mind. And as I said, that is why I do this podcast. That is why I think it is important to talk to people who have changed their minds because they do have this perspective. And I feel like David and I were able to talk to each other, not just because we have a, a similar background, though I think, you know, that's, a, that's of course, you're going to connect with people who have a similar background, but because he was willing to approach it as somebody who, who understands uh, what it's like to have been on the other side, who, who understands the arguments and the feelings that come along with that. I think that that's also underestimated because you can say, oh, this person here has always held this belief, but they've really examined these other arguments that are made by the other side and they really understand them and they're very earnest in how they deal with them. And those people are very, very valuable. I'm not discounting that at all, but there is another level that I think people who have changed their minds, who have done a 180, bring to this conversation because they understand what it feels like to be on the other side as well. Our experiences and our emotions shape how we perceive the world. So I'm grateful to um, this listener for texting the flip phone, and I'm so glad that they enjoyed the episode. Please continue to send voicemails or texts at 323-999-1802. Okay. Okay. We're we're moving on to the debunking conventional wisdom subject and I have some things to say. I fell flat on my face this this past week. Last week, I guess. I fell flat on my face. And it took me a few days to realize where I went wrong and to acknowledge to myself that I was wrong. And 
you have no idea the level of anxiety bound up in that little knot in the pit of my stomach that I've had for like 10 days straight. I wrote an article about ectopic pregnancies in which I argued that ectopic pre- uh, abortion for ectopic pregnancies was not really necessary. And I interpreted the data in such a way as to support my conclusion. There was another physician that wrote an article that I found compelling that supported that idea. And I took inspiration from that and, and went and did more research on top of that. The problem was, is that I was wrong. And the way I interpreted the evidence was faulty. And when I went back and looked at my reasoning, I saw the gaping holes in my logic that you could drive a semi-truck through and my heart just sank. Because this was such this was a very sensitive topic. It was a matter of life and death. It was a matter that had a lot of emotion and grief and tragedy bound up in it. And I did not approach it the way that I should with the level of of care and compassion that I should have and the level of diligence in evaluating the evidence and having other people who know more than me check that work and make sure that it was correct. And I just, I totally failed. Uh, there's There's no other way to say it. Like I said, I, there's this pit, there's this this knot in the pit of my stomach for so many days that just ate me up inside. And the lesson that I have tried to learn and relearn over the years is always assume you know less than you think you do. And I didn't apply that to this issue. And I fell headlong into confirmation bias. There's just no other way to say it. And I wanted to believe something because it fit my worldview. It fit my worldview. So there were, uh, I'll, I'll just go through really quick a couple of the main points where I went wrong. The first point was that I, I used a very sloppy definition of abortion because abortion is generally considered to be the direct and intentional killing of the fetus and surgery for ectopic pregnancy, usually salpingectomy or salpingostomy, where there's either an incision made in the fallopian tube to to pull out the the fetus and the other um, pregnancy tissue like the, the placenta, or the part of the tube is actually taken out that has the baby in it. The point is not to kill the fetus. The point is to save the mother from rupture, which could lead to catastrophic hemorrhage and death. And I will say that the people who really changed my mind and brought me around on this were doctors who were willing to talk to me in a gracious and reasonable manner. And they pointed me in the right direction and and gave me some things to read and pointed some things out all in a very charitable way. And I am extremely, extremely grateful to those people for doing so. And uh, one of them I, I do quote in this this article that I just wrote, and I'm very appreciative to him for, for reaching out to me after I wrote the initial article and, uh, and approaching it in such a 
a calm and patient manner. So if you want to know a little bit about how you can persuade somebody who's made a tremendous misstep in in your view, yelling at them on Twitter is, is probably not the best way to do it. But if you reach out to them individually and privately and just calmly explain yourself and and try to understand that that person probably has good intentions and don't assume that they have bad intentions, I think you're going to get a lot farther. That's been my experience on the other side of this thing. And as you can see, all this sort of ties into what I said about the interview with David in that your philosophical commitments can really get in the way. They can. And I let that happen. And here I am debunking myself. Yes, it is necessary sometimes to remove the baby, the ectopic baby, which means that almost all of them are are located in the fallopian tube. So they're not in the uterus and they can't continue growing there to viability. Some places other in the, uh, some places elsewhere in the abdomen, they, they can continue growing to viability and there are cases of that happening, but when it's in the tube, they cannot. And if they remain there, there is a danger of catastrophic hemorrhage, which obviously you must prevent. And it is, uh, medical malpractice to not do that. So that is my self-debunk for the day. You can read that article explaining my reasoning why I was wrong at The Federalist. And don't forget, once again, you can call the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out or flip my position or tell me how you flip-flopped. Hey, We've all done some sort of flip-flop. I don't mean it in the derogatory sense. I mean it in the excellent sense of you changed your mind because you reevaluated some of the evidence and you've come to a different conclusion. That's 323-999-1802. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram once again at 180cast. And please, if you enjoy this podcast and you have found it helpful, like the person who texted the flip phone, today, you can give it a review on iTunes and reviews really help in putting this podcast in front of more ears. Yes, I would greatly, I would greatly appreciate it if you did take a couple minutes to do that. You can follow me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman. Please do not yell at me. That's not going to get you very far, but I will try my best to be patient and kind with with everybody and uh, i i i will fail but there there it is there you go i i tweet about a lot of stuff until next time seek the truth share your values and listen with your heart and your mind god bless in the middle of struggle though let me see who i am what i need who i've got in the middle of a struggle though let me see who i am what i need who executive producer kevin mccullough music by ricky craft and joe kim norton in the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be. Yeah. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.